Hello again. I'm Alex Bloomberg, the CEO of Gimlet, the company that made the Homecoming podcast. And as most of you probably know by now, I'm here because over these last couple of episodes, we've been telling you the story of how our first fiction podcast, this podcast, Homecoming, became an original TV series on Amazon. We told that story on another Gimlet podcast called Startup, and we have been putting those episodes down this feed. This is the third episode of that series. Let's get to it. Welcome back to Startup. I'm your host, Alex Bloomberg, sitting in as I do from time to time for the regular host, Lisa Chow. And over the last couple of episodes, I've been telling the story of how our first fiction podcast became a big-budget TV show on Amazon. I've been following the two writers of the podcast, Eli and Micah, who became head writers and showrunners on the TV show. And we've arrived at episode three. When I first went to visit Eli and Micah at their new offices on the Universal set, I pulled my rental car through one of the main gates and got directions. The Universal lot is huge, like the size of a giant university campus huge. There are streets with names like Kirk Douglas Drive and James Stewart Avenue. There's a soundstage with a giant portrait of Steve Harvey. There's the Universal Amusement Park with the Harry Potter rides and the shark from Jaws and a multi-level structure called Jurassic Parking. There's the fake New York, the fake Old West, the fake small town square where Back to the Future was filmed. And eventually, there's the parking lot where all the employees on the homecoming production park. Well, almost all of them. There are four other parking spots, much closer to the actual office. These spots are located along a small lane going up the side of a hill. And each of these four spots has a nameplate next to it. The nameplate on the bottom spot says Anastasia White, the production designer. Above her, Sam Esmail, the director. And then the two spots at the very top, closest to the office, Micah Bloomberg and Eli Horowitz. And then right above them, in a nice complication to this symbolic hierarchy, is a spot reserved for something called lot plumbing only. But still, Micah had gone from someone who dreamed of having a parking space on the Universal lot to having one of the very best parking spaces there is. I was walking, you had your own parking spot right. on the hill. Yeah. Like you're above Sam Esmail. Yeah. And right below Eli, who's right below the plumber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they need to park there, Yeah. I wonder about that myself. Well, he must be a big wheel around here. <laughs> He's not really a plumber. He, yeah, exactly. he unclogs the pipes, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, this process has been really fast. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's very weird. It's weird, in other words, to be hustling gigs in the university library at one moment, and then just two years later, have the second reserved parking spot from the top of the hill. Not including the plumber. How do you go from being someone with no power to someone with all the power? That is today's episode. Welcome to Startup. One day, Micah told me a story that really brought home how disorienting his rapid rise had been for him. The story happened a couple months before he and Eli had arrived at the lot and discovered their reserved parking spaces on the hill, back when they were still writing scripts in their writer's room in L.A., Sam, the director, had sprung Eli and Micah for the day and brought them with him to the set of Mr. Robot, which he was still directing at the time. Now, Micah, remember, he'd worked for 10 years as a production sound mixer, one of the people on the crew. And when he arrived on the Mr. Robot set with Sam, he saw some people he knew from his production days. Yeah, I saw these guys, John and Brian. Um, Well, they thought I was doing the sound, but then I explained that... um, we were 
doing a show with Sam, like, you know, coming up. We were going to do Homecoming after we finished shooting Mr. Robot. Uh-huh. And, yeah, they were happy. And they were, I think, it was surprising. And it felt uncomfortable. It hadn't been long since Micah had been on a crew like these guys were. And part of his job when he'd been on this crew was meeting bigwigs who came to visit the set. Producers, financiers, friends of the director. He'd hook them up with these little earpieces called Comtex. And he'd meet them at this place called Video Village, which was an assembly of screens showing every possible camera angle. That's where the director and the showrunner sat, the producers and their friends. That's where the folding director chairs are with the names on the back. And this was one small, vaguely humiliating task that Micah would occasionally have to do in the course of his day. And now, here his friends were, giving him the Comtech, while he was the one hanging out in the folding chairs at Video Village. And that day, I certainly wasn't a boss at all on that set, but like I got a Comtech and I sat in one of those little chairs and I was at Video Village watching the scene with not much to do and not much reason to be there other than to say hi and be friendly. And so I felt a little bit like a traitor. Why? Well, there, you know, like... I spent a lot of time, like, you know, sitting at a mixer, sort of brooding um, and thinking about m- being marginalized or being um, put in a particular position. So I think, yeah, like, especially when I was younger, there would have been some bitterness if I had run into me. Yeah, for sure, that day. Right. Now that he was a big wig, Micah had something that he didn't have in his previous jobs power. I can say from personal experience, when you've been a person without much power and all of a sudden you have a lot of it, it's disorienting. Because power is not something you turn on and off. Once you have it, it's on all the time. And you're exercising it in everything you do, whether you know it or not. This became apparent to Micah and Eli once they went into production. And the scripts that they've been writing started to become reality. Here's Micah. So this is the best example of this. Um, there's a scene where Heidi is eating a yogurt. And in the script, we said, Heidi's eating a sad yogurt. And so this was mentioned to us by multiple departments. Like, what did you mean by this? And like, what we have these different yogurts. Which of these is the saddest? And we want to get that right. It's just like, I don't know. It was just a thing. We were like... You, you kind of know what we mean, right? They're eating a sad yogurt. They're like having a, 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 a break and they're eating like a yogurt. And it's, that's not a dream scenario. But they need to know, like, what did you mean? Like, what brand? Also, like, we can't show brands. So they need to make up a brand of yogurt and then, like, you know, create a label. And right. it needs to be set. And you just think. And, and now when you go to type something, you realize, like, this is going to, like, launch a thousand ships. It's a lot of responsibility from Mike and Eli, deciding which words are worth the ships they're going to launch. If they decide Walter goes for a drive, they need a car. If Heidi feeds her fish, she needs an actual fish tank with fish in it that are alive and that someone needs to keep alive. How did the sad yogurt thing end, by the way? Which, which yogurt is the saddest yogurt? We took the word sad out. <laughs> it's just yogurt. <laughs> That's the saddest thing of the yogurt. <laughs> Another artist being crushed by Hollywood. <laughs> in the end, that word sad... It wasn't worth all the ships that it would launch. But there was another word that they felt quite differently about. A word that turned into an ongoing debate that lasted months and involved tens of thousands of dollars. That word? Bird. Bird was the word. 
The Bird That Launched a Thousand Ships. That's coming up after the break. There's a scene in the first episode of season one of the Homecoming podcast where Walter and Heidi are just starting to get to know each other. And you hear something unexpected. Well, how often is that? Does that happen for you? Whoa. I'm sorry. It's just this. There's a. He'll just stop in a second. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah, it's driving me nuts. Some kind of protected species, so we're not even allowed to touch him. The bird you hear calling loudly in that original scene played a small but pretty key role in the plot of the entire series. And when Eli and Micah wrote the TV scripts, they kept the bird. But of course, now they had an army of people who had to make the bird real on screen. And one of the generals in that army of people is this man. My name is John Lennick. I'm a producer of the show. John is the guy who keeps everything running and everything under budget. He has huge binders filled with color-coded shot lists, spreadsheets filled with everyone's start and end dates, folders with invoices from hundreds of contractors the production uses, how many extras they'll need on this day, what time they'll need the crew at remote sites to take advantage of the light. John is in charge of making something incredibly complicated, a TV show, come in on time and under budget. And he has the personality of someone who thrives in that job. He is very good at anticipating all the ways everything can go wrong. And when he saw the word bird in the script, he had one thought. I just thought expensive. (laughs) And challenging to shoot. Because of all the complicated things that tend to go wrong on TV shoots, animals and children are high on the list. And the problem, John explains, is that unlike even the most extravagant or expensive props, kids and animals, they have to actually act. And they're not very good at it. Getting them to do something on cue or to camera or uh, getting them trained to squawk in a certain way or walk in a certain way is often a challenge, and often it holds up the shooting day. You just see the waste, because it's the time time you're wasting on set with 150 people standing around and uh, getting the dog to do exactly what you want, and it's like, it's not performing, and... I've had experience with lots of animals and lots of children, and they're all very challenging in their own ways. And so, some of the folks from the production team got together with Eli and Micah and said, you know, about that bird. Do we need the bird? Is the bird important in the story? Like, you know, and you're kind of like, you know, just very vaguely and like very, you know, normal questions, like how important is this? No one tried to make us take it out, but it was clear their lives would be a little easier if we did take it out. But making everyone's lives easier, that wasn't their job. That's not why they got those parking spaces on the hill. And Mike and Eli knew that the script, it wouldn't work without a bird. Bird, in other words, was a word that couldn't be deterred. And we said, no, I got to have the bird. And so, just like that, the question switched from, do you really need a bird? To, what kind of bird do you need? The bird in the actual podcast was a limpkin. The limpkin's a large, crane-like waterfowl, feeds on mollusks and snails. It's native to Florida. So they wondered, can we just get a limpkin? After a couple of days, the answer came back. The limpkin, it turns out, is a protected species. It's illegal to move them out of Florida. The limpkin's a no-go. So a short time after that, a couple folks from the prop team and Micah and Eli met to discuss other options. Here's Micah. So you're not going to get a limpkin. That's not going to happen because it's illegal. But here's some other birds. And then it's, they usually, there's like options. Uh And then you sort of, they come in here to this table and they show you headshots of birds. Which bird do you like? And then at very much at random, I think where we all kind of looked at them and then people were like, oh, this one, it was a beautiful, very large, kind of frightening bird. What it, kind of bird is it? It's a pelican. Mm-hmm. A pelican. Yeah. And 
we picked it, and then it was like, and then you, we found out like the cost of bringing this bird here for two days, this pelican, yeah, is enormous. It's like, it's <laughs> you could make. Well, I don't know. I mean, like you could. It's it's yeah. It's Let's like, reveal one detail. Yeah, come on, <laughs> and tell me we'll now. You if you don't want it in, we'll cut it out. But like, just as bird is twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah. To bring the bird here for two days. Apparently, yeah. there's one trained pelican in the biz. <laughs> and this is the one. No, I'm not being... Too, I'm, it's true. Get it. Eat it. This is the sound of a $25,000 pelican chewing on a microphone. The pelican doing the chewing is named Peggy. She's marshmallow white with an eight-foot wingspan. Up close, she looks prehistoric, like a dinosaur. Her trainer's name is Tony Suffredini. He's a wild animal trainer for the entertainment industry, and he specializes in birds. He and Peggy have come here to the Universal lot all the way from Oregon. Tony has known and worked with Peggy for years. Oh, Peggy, you're the best. I love you. Yeah, really, really lucky to get to work with uh, such a cool animal. I mean, she loves me. I hope so, anyways. Right, Peggy? She knows where the fish is, too. Tony feels very differently about animals than homecoming producer John Lennock does. But Tony concedes that, yes, sometimes they can be unpredictable as actors. Like this one time. Tony was working with his owl, an owl named Lump on a Log. Lol for short. He'd had Lol since he was a tiny chick. he trained him for six years. Lol's credits include numerous commercials for large companies, an upcoming Coen Brothers project. And on this one day, they were outside on the set of a car commercial that Lol was appearing in getting ready to do a shot for a commercial and um, a boom dropped, scared the bird and it flew away. Not just a little bit, a lot, like gone. My, my career just flew away. Tony had no idea where Lal had gone. They were shooting in the mountains in Arrowhead Springs near San Bernardino, California, where the foliage makes it very easy for an owl to hide. But then, fortunately, Tony saw a wild raven calling loudly, dipping and diving the way a raven behaves when it sees a predator. Tony started running, sprinting towards where the raven was flying, over a quarter mile up the side of a mountain. And when he got to where the raven was making the commotion, he saw Lal, high up in a tree. He talked to my producer, Luke, about what happened next. So I brought his favorite perch up the mountain and sat it down where he could see it and uh, called him over for a piece of food. And so he came out of the tree, landed on his perch, and picked him up and... Um, yeah, stopped shaking, took a second to get my breath, and uh, yeah, we went back to work. So you literally scaled a mountain to get him back? Yeah. I would have scaled three mountains to get him back. Yeah. Homecoming producer John Lennock, the one who's always watching the bottom line, he has a saying about his job, a credo, actually. It is this, get as many dollars on screen as possible. In other words, John doesn't want to spend money on things no one will see when they watch the show. Things like expensive craft services bills, or the cost of an extra shoot day because the crew showed up late, or the salaries of dozens and dozens of highly talented and expensive professionals standing around the set doing nothing while Tony Suffredini has to scale a mountain to retrieve a frightened owl. But Tony is optimistic that this shoot with Peggy won't go the way of the owl shoot. After all, Peggy doesn't have to do much, hardly anything in fact. She just has to stand still on a desk for two minutes. That's it. She doesn't have to fly. She doesn't have to make noise. She doesn't have to go from one place to another. She just has to stand there for two minutes. How hard could that be? She'll do great today. Yeah, I'm not worried. She's done some incredible, really hard stuff in the past, so this is easy for her. I'd be surprised if she didn't perform flawlessly. 
Yeah, Mark. Set. On set, it's showtime. The scene is in Heidi's office. It's just a static framed shot of Heidi's desk with papers scattered everywhere. Peggy is supposed to stand on that desk for two minutes. That's it. Just stand there. Don't move. My producer, Luke, and I watch the footage together. Into the frame walks Tony carrying Peggy, and he places her on the desk. Oh, oh my God. Tony is talking softly to Peggy. He takes out a small fish and feeds it to her. And if you're like me and you've never fed a pelican before, it's pretty shocking. Her massive beak with its huge baggy pouch consumes Tony's entire arm. That's apparently just how you feed a pelican. She eats, then flaps her wings violently in an attempt to get a good perch on the desk. Papers are swirling everywhere. So big. Her wingspan is huge. She's gigantic. All right, so now he's backing out of frame, and she's standing there. And this is the shot they're looking for. They just want her to stand on the desk. And she flies away, zooming past the camera to where Tony is standing out of frame. Take two. We see Tony carrying her back into the frame, putting her on the desk. The drill again. Takes out a small fish. She inhales his entire arm. He extracts it. She flaps violently. So now she's back on the desk. He put her back on the desk. Couple inches back. Couple inches back. He's getting the trainer out of frame. Peggy's standing there. Okay. Tony, how about if you come from camera so she looks this way? She just keeps flying. Luke and I watch the scene replay over and over. Most takes, Peggy flies off the desk almost as soon as Tony gets out of frame. Occasionally, she'll make it longer. Once, she came this close to the requisite two minutes. She's staying. It looks like she's going to do it. They're now at about a minute, almost. Stay. <laughs> I love the sound. After a bunch of takes, they still haven't gotten the shot they need. And now time is wasting. There are other things to do. So John, the producer, makes a move. You know how in baseball, when the starting pitcher starts to lose it, the manager will call in a new pitcher, a reliever? That's what John does. He calls in a relief camera crew. Runaways? All right. All right. So runaways are going to come in. The runaways are a second camera crew. They shoot mostly B-roll. That is, establishing shots, stills, close-ups, that sort of thing. My producer, Luke, talked to Kristen K2 Carell, the camera operator for The Runaways, and her first AC, Sarah Brandes. The Pelican. Yeah. Peggy the Pelican. Peggy, uh, we just need two minutes, Peggy, just two minutes that so you just stand in on the, the desk. Stand. Come on. 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 At first, the runaways had the same luck that the first camera crew had had. But then, they came up with an idea. We just ignored her. Yeah, we just ignored We all turned, turned our her back, back and uh, was pretty quiet. And she just got bored and just decided she was going to stay on the desk for two minutes. It was pretty great. It's like, you know, B-camera life. In the end, two camera crews and multiple takes later, the money in the form of a $25,000 Pelican was finally on screen. For Eli and Micah, it was worth it. Like, remember when we were writing that and, like, talking about it, like, the idea of, like, her opening the door and there's this bird in there. And, like, that was just exciting to talk about, you know? And then it was it was uh, cool when you're, like, looking at the monitor and having, like, this visceral reaction to seeing that. It's, like, very strange. Yeah, it had that perfect... It was kind of majestic and grotesque, and it had the impact that we that we wanted. 
Coming up on the fourth and final episode of the special startup miniseries about the making of the Homecoming TV show, what's it like to be on set if you're not a Pelican? I sit down with the two leads, Stefan James and Julia Roberts, and the director, Sam Esmail, to find out. That's coming up in the next episode of Startup. Oh, and one exciting announcement. The next season of Startup launches very soon, next Friday, November 9th. Lisa Chow and the Startup team embed with a rapidly growing organization that's trying to fix one of the deepest problems in America, education. They go behind the scenes and see what this organization is doing to achieve some pretty remarkable results for kids who often get overlooked. And they talk to critics who think that the organization is breaking public education. You don't want to miss this amazing series that launches November 9th. Right now, in your feed at this very moment, is the fourth and final installment in our homecoming series on Startup. You can listen to that right now. All you have to do is just sit through these credits. This episode of Startup was hosted by me, Alex Bloomberg, and produced by Stevie Lane, Sam Dingman, and Luke Malone. We were edited by Devin Taylor. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song. Build Buildings wrote and performed our special ad music. Additional music by the band HotMoms.gov and Bobby Lord. Peter Leonard and Sam Baer mixed this episode. Special thanks to Chris Giliberti. To subscribe to Startup, you can go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts, or check us out on the Gimlet website, gimletmedia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.